This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial, go to Squarespace.com slash Slate. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate Spoiler Special on the remastered re-release of Taxi Driver. Joining me today in the studio is Mr. John Swansburg. Hi, John. Good morning. My longtime foe. <laughs> we meet again. We meet again. And, uh, yeah, you, you went to see Taxi Driver with me last night. Yeah. Um, neither of us had seen it in long enough that this, for us, was a true spoiler. I didn't remember the ending of the movie at all. Me neither. I, and we were joking when, before we were going in that it was sort of weird to do a spoiler on such a classic. But then we were both sort of pleasantly surprised to, to realize, I think, as we were sitting in the movie, that we didn't know exactly where it was going. I mean, I knew that the violent denouement was coming. The actual ending, the last sort of maybe three or four minutes of the movie, I had completely forgotten. Should we start by talking about what happens there? Yeah, we might as well jump in and spoil, and then I think we should do a quick outline for anybody who hasn't seen or doesn't remember the movie. At the end of the film, Travis Bickle, um, De Niro's character, is sort of plotting to, we, we presume, to assassinate uh, a presidential candidate named, what's his first name? Is it Charles? I think Charles. Charles Palantine, who's a senator from New York, and he's running for president. And uh, De Niro sort of makes, we assume, an attempt uh, to, to kill Palantine, but he's seen by a Secret Service agent and spooked uh, and runs away. And instead, he sort of decides to liberate the prostitute who he's sort of decided to take under his wing, played uh, famously by a very young Jody. Foster, and he shows up at the whorehouse where uh, Jodie Foster is, and he he sort of brutally slays her pimp, played by Harvey Keitel, wonderfully, uh, and a series of other kind of associated pimps <laughs> along the way, and that's the kind of violent ending that we all I think we all think of as the ending of Taxi Driver with De Niro, you know, using this series of weapons, high caliber guns to kill these people, not particularly expertly. So it's really violent. He shoots a guy's hand off. He shoots. It's kites. really not clear why he takes so long to kill that one guy. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like it's really drawn out and, and quite quite bloody and awful and then these long tracking shots of the bloody walls afterwards and then a famous and really beautiful shot right where the camera pulls up and there's no ceiling on the set all of a sudden right. and uh, it's something that's been used a lot since then but it must have been really really fresh in 1976 just this ceiling list kind of turning turning the whole thing almost into like a, a dollhouse or a playroom or something pulling up in a way yeah that shot is so is so amazing I, I wonder if it's on YouTube people should look it up because it's just uh, like you said it feels somewhat familiar now but watching it in the context of the movie last night it kind of blew my mind and uh, it's such an interesting way of treating that scene because it's so tense and violent as you're watching it and then as soon as all the shooting is done like you said there's a dollhouse moment and all of a sudden the camera just sort of slowly kind of going over the over the carnage and it's a real sort of change in tone but it really also kind of makes you look at the violence after it's over you can't just you know even if you've looked away during the actual shooting you've missed the, the kind of most gory part but then you're kind of forced to have to deal with this long languorous shot of the aftermath of the violence and uh, and the blood spatter and the and the body what it also kind of does is that it turns it into a news event right and then i can't remember if it's the same shot same really long shot or if um no it can't be it can't be that would be too spectacular but somehow the camera gets outside and keeps on pulling away as you see you know cops dealing with crowds that are running up to the house and suddenly it's become you know the the nightly news right. event rather than the story of this this one guy who we think at that point is dead right you right. think that robert de niro has um well he sort of pretends to kill himself in this great gesture where he holds a finger gun to his head as the cops come in but you think that he's been shot by one of the other he's been shot at least twice he's, he's shot in the neck by harvey Keitel. it's hard 
to see whether he was grazed or whether the bullet actually went into his neck. I guess he was only grazed. And then he shot in the arm by the man who was using Jody Foster's services at the moment when uh, Travis Bickle burst into the building. And yeah, so you assume you assume that he's dead. And, and the fact that that does transition into this being the very personal story of Travis Bickle's madness and rampage into a kind of nightly you know news moment is fitting because it sort of sets up the coda that we had both forgotten. Yeah, where- so I would have thought if asked that that was the end of the movie. He right. goes on the rampage, right? It turns into the nightly news event. You see the cops dealing with the crowds and then the movie ends. But no, there's this strange dreamlike coda that we should also spoil before we get into just the larger question of the aesthetics of the movie. At the very end, we hear a voiceover and it's the father of Jodie Foster's character essentially reading reading aloud a letter that he's written to Travis Bickle thanking him for essentially liberating his daughter from the indentured servitude you know that she was suffering at the hands of Harvey Keitel and we learn that she's now returned to Pittsburgh and is re-enrolled in school and is according to the letter you know living a happy kind of uh, life in the country we also learn that Travis Bickle in the aftermath of the violence has been portrayed in the media and I guess has convinced the police that he was some kind of hero, that he he went in there trying to save this poor little girl who had been abused and forced into prostitution, when in fact we know that, in fact, Jodie Foster is a relatively willing or, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that, but she's not exactly being held captive at gunpoint by Harvey Keitel. Uh, and Bickle has sort of been portrayed in the, in the local news clipping, some of which are taped to the wall of Bickle's apartment. As a, as a sort of vigilante hero. That was something that didn't ring true to me just on a pure factual level. Right. Because it just seems like however he presented the story to the cops, he's obviously a mentally unstable person. The details of the crime scene don't really support that. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, and Jodie Foster could have just contradicted it herself, assuming right. that she was questioned. Right. It's not, I mean, however badly you look upon, you know, 14-year-old girls being prostitutes, it's not technically legal to storm a uh, whorehouse heavily armed and shoot five people in order to get them, you know, the, the ability to go back to Pittsburgh to their family. So how exactly that would have ever been spun as some kind of self-defense or, or you know, act of liberation, you know, I just, it's a little bit hard to figure. It's one of the few moments that don't just feel perfect in the movie to me. I mean, there's something so perfectly judged about so many of the choices in this movie and about the world it creates. Right. And then I felt like it entered another world toward the end. But then let's get to the coda to the coda. Right. So then there's another coda. So the very final scene, we see... Travis Bickle is chatting with his cabbie buddies that we've seen earlier in the movie, including Peter Boyle, who's fantastic, as one of his fellow uh, hack. The wizard. The wizard, exactly. One of the other cabbies says, oh, you know, Travis, you've got a fare. And so he goes and gets in his cab. And who is in the backseat of his cab but Sybil Shepard, who plays the woman that Bickle becomes obsessed with earlier in the film and sort of stalks and actually takes out on a date. And before he sort of reveals his true craziness, you know, they have a cup of coffee and, and actually have a, a real date. But then ultimately she becomes very scared of him. And, he's, and it's sort of implied that her rejection of him is what sends him off the deep end, which right. no doubt he would have gone off anyway, but that's the instigating. Exactly. Event. So all of a sudden we see her in the backseat and and she asks him to take her, I think, home and, and uh, they have a conversation in the cab. It's sort of played like he is sort of dismissive of her, like he's over her. He, you know, She's more interested in him at that point than he is in her, right? She's read the clippings. She's kind of impressed with him, right? right? And then he, he lets her out at her house and doesn't charge her for the ride. And there's this weird feeling at the end of it. It's like almost like it's a scene from Taxi, the TV show or something. <laughs> it was just a little too heartwarming to belong at the end of that movie. It's very And then we were theorizing it after, afterwards. You were saying that maybe it was supposed to happen in his mind. But there hasn't been any precedent set in the movie that we're entering some fantasy world of Travis Bickle. No, there's nothing 
there's no cue in the film to suggest, oh, this is a hallucination or just a daydream of Travis Bickle. But it almost feels that way because, A, of all the cabbies in New York, she ends up getting she back. She walks into, into mine. She walks into his, into his gypsy. And also there's like other, other details uh, that sort of struck me as a little bit odd. I mean, maybe this is thinking about it too hard, but – it's July when he tries to assassinate Palantine, and in order to do that, he shaves his head into a mohawk. And then part of the dialogue that he has with Sybil Shepherd is, is she says, oh, Palantine's won the nomination, and now he's going to go into the general election. So that means that, that we know that that is happening in October. And he's in, in the final oh, yeah, scene. Yeah, you're saying his mohawk's his ha- not grown his out mohawk, His mohawk is completely gone. His hair looks exactly the way it did previous to the mohawk. And, you know, human hair grows at about like an inch a month. <laughs> See, this I'm, is what the slate spoiler special exists for. Yeah, so Theorizing I'm, the growth rate of thinking, mohawk. I'm thinking it's very hard to believe that the hair had grown back as well as it was suggested in that scene in that short period of time. Because we're talking, what, four months? Tops? July to October? So I don't know. It's I mean that's a that's a sort of thin <laughs> that's a thin argument for why it might be an imagined uh, scene. But I think more realistically, it's just a little bit of a false note in a movie that has almost none of them. And it, it's particularly striking though because because the, the the violence is so shocking and memorable. That's what you kind of take away from the movie. But you know, we we quizzed a few people on our way into this spoiler, and no one called could call to mind that last Sybil Shepherd scene. Or you know, it, it seems like people forget that because the violence is so iconic in the movie. It would be interesting to poll people who have seen Taxi Driver, but not for years, and, right. and say what what do you think the ending? Wait, of the what's movie the last is? thing that happens in the movie? It's uh, I, I bet a few people would come up with uh, with the Sybil Shepherd riding in the back of the of the cab. But maybe we just have bad memories. This spoiler special is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create and manage a high-quality website or blog. You can go there and create a website that's uniquely you to display your photos from Flickr, a blog you've been writing, the tweets and RSS feeds you want to feature, whatever you want. You can try it out today for free if you visit Squarespace.com slate and sign up for their free trial. Then choose a design template and get started. No credit card needed, just give it a try. That's Squarespace.com slate to sign up for a free trial, and we thank Squarespace for their support. So, John, I just wanted to get a general sense of you of what it was like to revisit Taxi Driver after 35 years. Or maybe it hasn't been 35 years since you've seen it, but 35 years since the release. It feels to me almost like it's a Beatles record or something. It's like I don't need to experience Taxi Driver anymore because it's sort of part of our cultural DNA or something, which it is. But it's always great to go back and revisit those things after a time away. And I was just stunned by so many things about Taxi Driver. It was a way different experience to see it than I expected. Yeah, I think it's actually really important to revisit a a movie, particularly a movie like this, where, as we were saying earlier, there are certain scenes that have become so iconic that that's what we remember. And as a result, we forget a lot of things. And I think we both had the experience of being somewhat shocked by how quiet the movie is in the beginning. And um, how long it takes to wind up to that violence toward the end. Exactly. And it's quiet in different ways. I mean, it's actually literally quiet in the sense that there are a lot of scenes when we are with um, Travis Bickle, either in his small apartment or in his cab, where it's just us looking through the lens of the camera at him looking at the world of New York, which he has <laughs> strong feelings about. He thinks that New York is full of scum and awful people and that they need to be washed away in some kind of apocalyptic rain. Um, but we're, we're spending a lot of time alone with him where he's not speaking. There's very little exposition. In fact, we know very little about his character. And that's something that I was um, taken aback by and really admired about the movie uh, in watching it again was how little it tells us about Travis Bickle. Everything we know about him is basically what we see him do in the movie. There's a there's a hint when he's applying for his job as a taxi driver at the very beginning of the movie that he's a Vietnam veteran. It's never really confirmed one way or the other. He could be lying about that for all we know. 
Uh, he does wear the sort of military-style jacket throughout the movie. But we really don't know anything about Bickle. We don't know the nature of his madness. We, we can tell that he's off. Uh, and certainly he's – we can certainly tell at the end that he's off by his actions. But throughout, we're worried about what he might do. But we don't know why he thinks New York is full of scum and horror. We don't know why he can't sleep. We don't know what – we know he's taking medication, but we don't know the nature of his psychotic issues. Right. I kind of tried a thought experiment during the first 15 minutes or so. What if you'd never seen this movie and you knew nothing about it, right? You didn't right. know, are you talking to me? You didn't know kind of the iconic Robert De Niro impersonation of Travis Bickle and the mohawk at the end. And really for the first 20 minutes or so of the movie, he's not that off, right? right? I mean, he seems a little bit of a loner, a little bit alienated, but he doesn't necessarily seem disturbed until a good 20 minutes into the film. Basically, when he starts messing with Sybil Shepherd's head, that's when you know something's really wrong. Right. But you could almost believe that he's kind of a lonely nebbish who's looking to be integrated into society and that, it, and that he's going to be sort of the hero of the story. Right. When in fact, he ends up being way more than an anti-hero. He's actually the villain. I mean, the relationship that we have with Travis Bickle is so weird and radical in this movie, right? Because he's not a Bonnie and Clyde kind of romantic antihero. He's actually a pretty unpleasant person to spend two hours with, even before he starts going on a killing rampage. Right. Well, you were saying that you admire that he's not given any backstory at all. We don't know why he's crazy or what happened to make him that way. Right. I mean, I think a different movie would have suggested more strongly that, oh, you know, he saw some things when he was in the shit in Da Nang, you know, or, you know, even had a flashback or suggested something about his upbringing that was that made him this way. But the movie completely resists doing that. He writes a letter to his parents at the end of the movie shortly before he goes on his uh, killing spree but that's really the only thing we the only thing we know about his parents is that Travis is essentially uh, estranged from them he won't reveal his address in New York and he but claims he, that he's working for the government right. for some top secret <laughs> right right so he has these sort of delusions of grandeur but we don't know anything about those parents and I remember that you, you noticed the great detail of the card he picks out to send to his uh, parents is this like kind of ridiculous Hallmark card where it's like two chipmunks dressed up in, in like Boy Scout costumes or then maybe they're not chipmunks maybe I'm remembering that but it's like a very kind of cute card that he then writes this long message in it's, it was one of the kind of great little visual details in a movie that's full of wonderful visual details that kind of if you blink you, you miss them yeah nothing gets hammered home I and mean, until that, that ending that we're both ambivalent about there's, there's nothing in this movie that gets, gets hammered you can make what you want out of these details and I would have remembered it as a very wordy movie because Paul Schrader wrote the screenplay right, right? and all of the movies that he made subsequently I, mean, I, actually, I actually like movies that Paul Schrader wrote and directed but you know they're completely ham handed and insanely verbose right. and this movie really really isn't he writes in his diary There's a little bit of voiceover from the diary, but there's really a lot of scenes of, well, I wouldn't say silence because there's a beautiful score by Bernard Herrmann, which I want to talk about too, but a lot of of dialogue-free scenes of him driving around. One thing that that the screenwriting I think gets right that impressed both of us is uh, we get snippets throughout the movie of Charles Palantine's campaign speeches, his sort of stump speech. That was really well handled because it was a stump speech that sort of felt like completely timeless. It felt like it could have been spoken by a member of either party. It could have been spoken 20 years ago. It could be spoken 10 years ago. It was. It sort of felt like he completely nailed political stump speech. Um, and it was nice that that was sort of always in the ether. You know, it was never that central to the plot, but it was always kind of just around. Right. It actually reminds me a little bit of the vision of politics in, in Robert Altman's Nashville, Yeah. right, where politics is just sort of this theater that's always going on. It doesn't matter whether it's right or left. There's kind of no content to it. But that really kind of points up a certain mid-'70s anomie, better, far better than actual topical political satire. Yeah, absolutely. So what else did we want to discuss? Oh, the Scorsese cameo. Let's talk about that for a minute. There's a really funny, disturbing moment that we see the young director, Martin Scorsese, in the back of De Niro's cab. Right. So he's one of Bickle's fares. And Bickle sort of makes a point of saying he'll take 
any uh, there are a lot of cabbies who are afraid to kind of go to the Bronx or go to Harlem, but he says he'll pick up anybody. And <laughs> even Martin Scorsese. Even Martin Scorsese wearing a wearing a kind of great little uh, beard, like kind of well trimmed beard, and uh, looking kind of crazy. And uh, Scorsese takes him to some some corner and then tells him to pull over, but keep the meter running. And basically, he what he wants to do is observe from the backseat of the cab the uh, window of a brownstone where he says that his wife is having an affair with a with a black man. He doesn't put it that way. He uses, he uses stronger language. And he then sort of goes on this rant to Bickle about how he's going to kill her, he's going to kill the man she's having an affair with, and he says he has, he describes his forty five caliber weapon, and he, in very graphic detail says, have you ever seen, you know, what a forty five does to someone's face? And it goes on from there, and it's, it's really terrifying. What's really striking about that scene, actually, is that the most disturbing rhetoric that's ever spoken in the movie comes from him, right? right? right. And so I don't, I don't know exactly what he's doing with that, but it makes it almost as if De Niro's character, Travis Bickle, is open to whatever weirdness comes his way, right? It's sort of like, if that hadn't happened, right? If that fair hadn't gone on that crazy, sexist, racist, violent rant in his cab, would he have gone so far? If Sybil Shepard hadn't rejected him, would he have gone so far? Right. Or, as you suggested before, if it wasn't Sybil Shepard, it would have been some other woman. If it wasn't Martin Scorsese, it would have been, you know, Francis Ford Coppola getting into the back of the cab, (laughs) going to see his, you know, his wife cheating on him. Um, But it's an interesting choice to put the voice outside of Travis Bickle's head, because you have this, this horrible feeling as he's going on about it, like, this is the wrong guy to say those things around because right. he would actually do it. Right. But and again, to the movie's credit for its subtlety, we basically see mostly the back of Bickle's head in that scene. We don't see Bickle's sort of eyes lighting up being like, oh, I'm going to, this is a great idea. I'm going to get get my hands on a 45 and do some shooting. It takes a while for it to sink in. It plants a seed, but it's not it does you know the dots are not so close together. That oh yeah, feels- his face is completely impassive. That's yeah. kind of the power of the scene is right. you have no idea what's going on in his head. And I mean, both because of De Niro's performance and because of the writing, Travis Bickle is just an incredible character. Yeah, he's not a straight up obvious psycho who you can trace. You know, connect the dots of how he's going to go crazy. You never know quite what he's going to do next. Yeah, even having seen the movie long ago, I just I found him so volatile and frightening. Yeah, he's a complete cipher in the most terrifying way. A couple other things we could talk all day about this movie, but I wanted to visit Scorsese's vision of New York and how it looks now on camera. I mean, one of the ironies of this movie is that in trying to show the filth and scum of the streets and, you know, what a horrible garbage dump New York has become, he's actually showing what to us almost seems like a romantic lost New York of the 70s. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the shots, particularly of the neon of Times Square of the mid 70s, it's hard not to be nostalgic for the way that looked, even though, sure, it was, you know, (laughs) it it was filled with pimps and hookers and drug dealers as opposed to, you know, tourists from Ohio but it gives you this feeling of nostalgia more than more than horror or disgust and certainly uh, beauty just pure aesthetic beauty which I think was true even at the time I mean the cinematography yeah. is just kind of seeing the the blurred lights going by on the glass of the the side of the car it's just there's just a lot of just pure painterly beauty yeah and I think I think you're right that that was probably meant to be beautiful in 1976 as well in part because of the way that those visuals are paired up with the music which you mentioned before but these the sort of beautiful um, score that accompanies a lot of the long passages where we're just looking at New York through the window of the cab. You know, I think that this was Bernard Herrmann's last score, if I'm not mistaken, unless he quickly managed to jam composing one more score in between writing this and dying in 1975. The movie came out in 76. It's a really amazing, I think, sort of, it's a coming together of an old style Hollywood score mm-hmm. with um, something really modern. And there's that kind of, I can't sing it right now, but I had it in my head all last night, the kind of saxophone, the mournful saxophone theme that's in a lot of those driving sequences. Right. It's almost like a jazz, you know, it's sort of like a, a, a mournful jazz saxophone solo. Right. And 
And so that will accompany these scenes of him driving around. And I think that that music was a large part of why you start off the movie thinking, oh, maybe this is a good guy, you know, yeah. reflecting a reflective guy or whatever, not kind of realizing what insane stuff that he's reflecting on. Right. But then at other moments, it'll suddenly shift into this crazy, almost like Herman Psycho score. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, there's this harp arpeggio, this kind of anxiety producing harp sound. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, totally. You hear it a lot during the scenes when he's starting to go nuts, like the, the scene where he works out because every muscle must be tight. Right. No more bad food. There's this crazy speech he gives to himself when he decides that he's going to become a lean, mean, killing machine. Right. And, uh, and it's accompanied by the, the psycho-style Bernard Herrmann music. Right. And the jazzier riff that you mentioned that kind of reoccurs throughout, there's a great moment towards the end where Harvey Keitel is, uh, his pimp is sort of reassuring Jodie Foster that he loves her and wants to take care of her. And he puts a record on the hi-fi and start, it starts playing that snippet of jazz that we've become familiar with from the score. Now it's sort of inhabiting the room and the scene as if it's you know Harvey Keitel's favorite record. And he sort of does a slow dance with uh, Jodie Foster and reassures her that he's going to take care of her. And even though he's you know pimping her out to have sex with these awful people all day, that he really cares about her. And that's a really haunting, odd scene. Almost like touching in a way. I mean, there's, there is some sense that Keitel does care for her in, in some weird fashion. But uh, the way that that music is repurposed in the end like that is uh, I thought was really was really interesting. Yeah, the music goes a long way toward making this somewhat of a humanist film even though there's almost no human interaction that you would want to engage in in the right. whole film. I mean, it's a movie about a nihilist, but it's not a nihilist movie, I don't think. No, I think that's right. So I'm going to head home and write on this movie now and I'm really excited because I've got so much more to say. Thanks for coming in and talking with me. Uh, thanks for having me. I can't wait to read your piece. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.